Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Peyton. And thank you guys for leading us in worship, for helping us to declare the excellencies of our God as we have for the last half hour. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and we are delighted that you're here. Here's the gospel. It is the good news. It is the great story. It is the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. There's quite literally no better news, no better news broadcast declaration that could potentially exist in the universe than that. The thing that we fundamentally and foundationally need most has been done for us. Well, this morning, we're going to start a brand new summer sermon series in the book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians is one of these wonderful epistles, these letters from an apostle to some people in a place at a period for a purpose that helps us to draw the definition that we like to give a lot here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church of what the gospel is. The book of Colossians is one of these contributive sources that helps us to really understand the depths, the grandeur, the enormity, and the glory of the gospel. So for the purpose of this morning, as we begin our study in the book of Colossians, I want to sort of more particularize. I want to sort of come down the funnel of specificity with respect to the gospel, and I want to give us our big idea for the morning. Coming out of that large umbrella definition of the gospel, this morning, as we start our study in the book of Colossians, the gospel is faith and love because of hope. So we're going to see the Apostle Paul very refined, give us a very precise and narrow and specific definition. The gospel is faith and love because of hope. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Now, just very briefly, I want to give a little bit of background and context because we say this all the time. Apart from context, there is no meaning. You cannot have accurate, full, 360-degree, fully-orbed meaning apart from context. So let me give you a little bit of background. Colossae is in what is today modern-day Turkey. Colossae is one of three cities that sort of go together, this tri-city region in the Lycus River Valley of what is today south-central Turkey. There was Hierapolis, there was Laodicea, and there was Colossae. Now, Colossae, okay, I, need you, I need you to go there with me. I need you to like be there. I need you to see this. I need you to smell it. I need you to feel it. Colossae is, um, it's like Napa Valley. If you've ever been to Northern California, there's these wonderful mountains, the Cadmus Mountains, that are not super high. They're about 8,600 feet in elevation, and they're snow-capped almost year-round. There's this half bowl of the Cadmus Mountains, and then right below that is the city of Colossae, probably named for these enormous white mineral deposits that looked like the Colossus at Rhodes. And so it was named Colossae. They also were famous for selling Colissimus, which was this reddish dye, uh, reddish purplish dye for dyeing wool. And it was part of these three cities. And it was surrounded because of the mountains and the water that would come off of the mountain from the snowmelt. There was this incredibly lush agricultural land that came all out from the mountains past and around Colossae. And it was utterly and completely surrounded by millions upon millions of fruit trees. That's right, fruit trees. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And 
Colossae sits here. It's about 12 miles from Hierapolis. It's about 12 miles from Laodicea. The snow melt would come off the Cadmus Mountains and produce this very cold running water stream that would go all the way down the Lycus River Valley to Laodicea. Whereas Hierapolis, Hierapolis was known for its hot mineral springs. And that hot water would flow from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. And so you had cold water coming in. You had hot water coming in. Perhaps you've read Revelation 3 and you know the story of the church at Revelation that Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. The cold coming from Colossae, the hot coming from Hierapolis. And so I spit you out. Now that letter that Jesus writes to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 was probably also intended for the people of Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae, though beautiful, though situated in what we would equate to a northern California, beautiful valley scene. Well, it came at a cost. It set on a pretty significant fault line. And so in AD 60, a massive earthquake completely leveled those three cities. And the Roman Empire decided that Hierapolis and Laodicea were so significant that they would rebuild those, but Colossae was left to its own. And so the people of Colossae, they did rebuild it, but at their own expense, and so it never really fully recovered. They sort of limped along. They became sort of the backwater of the three cities, and they sort of maintained just the small town rural feel until finally the city was utterly abandoned in the mid-700s A.D. There's nothing there. Been there a couple times, praise God. It's amazing. It's beautiful, but there's nothing there. It's hardly ever been excavated at all. The apostle Paul himself had never been to Colossae. So Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossian, at Colossae, the Colossians. There is sort of a succinct Christological theme of the book of Colossians. It's just four chapters, but it is jam-packed. Sort of goes with its big brother, its, its larger brother, Ephesians. They're very similar in content. But the point of the book of Colossians goes very simply like this. It is the supremacy of Christ. We'll get that in a couple weeks. It is the supremacy of Christ. He's bigger, broader, brighter, better than anything. The supremacy of Christ. That's the succinct, efficient, Christological theme. But then there's more of a sort of a, a practical rubber meets the road kind of theme for the book of Colossians. And we say this all the time, that repetition is the mother of learning. So every time you hear the word Colossians, I want you to instinctively and instantly word associate and think supremacy of Christ. Colossians, supremacy of Christ. Colossians, supremacy of Christ. I'll come to your door, three in the morning, or in the doorbell, I go, Colossians! And you go, supremacy of Christ, and then you call the cops. But then there's a sort of a more practical, more applicational theme of the book of Colossians, and it goes like this. Confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. Now, you sort of have to read all of the book of Colossians to get this, but Paul is addressing some of these uh, early false teachings that have begun to infiltrate the church at Colossae. Church is only maybe about five years old, and Paul didn't plant it. It was planted by an apostolic delegation. Talk more about that in a moment. But there are all these false teachings that are beginning to infiltrate and influence the church at Colossae, and so Paul writes to confront and correct conflict with the kingship of Christ. See, as it turns out, one of the things we learn very practically from the book of Colossians is that heresies, that is, doctrinal errors, are generally local. We have our own flavors here in East Texas. Oh, yes, we do. Heresies are typically local, but truth is universal. So wherever you are, sub-Saharan Africa, under the banyan tree, perhaps you're in Southeast Asia, perhaps you're in 
South America or Western Canada. There's always going to be certain varietals and flavors of error and heresy, but there is one central universal truth, and it is the supremacy of Christ. So Paul writes this letter, and I love Colossians. And I hope, and I pray, and I expect that you will as well. So we're going to begin Colossians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul begins his letter thus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Do not go to verse 2. Because this is just so absolutely immense, what Paul says here. I want to remind you that when Paul writes this, he's sitting in his first Roman imprisonment in Rome. He is sitting in chains, quite literally. He'll say that at the end of Colossians chapter 4, I am in chains. But the book of Acts ends with the final word that is unchained. The gospel is unchained. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is chained. What's going on here? This isn't how it's supposed to go. We spent the entire spring semester walking through the gospel of Mark, looking at the object of our faith, Jesus, so that our faith would grow. The work and the person of Jesus Christ. For 14 weeks, we looked at that, concluding at Easter, Resurrection Sunday, because Jesus is alive. Last week, I did a one-sermon survey of the entire book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, Luke is writing, this is what the world looks like now that Jesus has died and is alive and is alive forevermore. It's the resurrection effect. And Luke begins his account in Acts by talking about addition. And 3,000 were added and 4,000 were added. But as soon as Paul starts taking missionary journeys in chapter 13, we start the language of multiplication. We went from addition to multiplication. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we've moved from multiplication to regional exponential expansion. Now we're not talking about just people being added or even multiplied. Now we're talking about churches that are blowing out the gospel. And there is worldwide, the known world at that time, expansion because of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm sitting in Rome and the gospel's unchained. I'm an apostle. Why does Paul say this? So that they understand that they must pay attention to him. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we've probably said in church before, and perhaps we've heard that, and you go, well, yeah, whose else apostle is he going to be? Let me remind you, he is sitting in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman centurion to say, I am a delegate, an ambassador, an emissary, and an agent of Jesus Christ is high treason. Paul was not writing this letter himself. He's dictating it out loud. Okay? He's dictating these words, and he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is a divine title. That is a proclamation of the kingship and the reign of Jesus Christ on earth, that he's actually the king of the world. By Roman law, it mandated that Caesar was Lord, and to proclaim any other being as such was punishable by instant death. And yet, Paul is undeterred. He pulls no punch. He dictates this out loud to his assistant who's writing it down. And there's something in these words that the centurion doesn't kill him on the spot, which he should have. He saw something in Paul. Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Caesar's had power. Make no mistake. But they all died. That's always the problem with being a Caesar. You get a good run. You get some momentum. And then you die. But Jesus died 
and is alive, and he's alive forevermore, and he is a death-proof king. And so Paul says he has the supremacy, the preeminence, and the primacy. And the centurion goes, continue. Never heard this, never seen this kind of a thing. But not only that, Paul says, an apostle, so I have authority. I'm not like the other 12. The other 12 spent three years in Jesus' earthly ministry, being directly taught and instructed by Jesus. Paul says, and I'm not like one of those. And I didn't even get, I didn't even get to replace Judas. Remember that guy? I didn't even get to replace Judas. I got, he got replaced by some guy named Matthias. I mean, come on. Well, that's because Paul was busy murdering Christians at the time. He was a bad candidate. He was like fervent in trying to abolish this way movement. But then God gets a hold of him in Acts chapter 9, and Paul is converted. And we know from 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 15, and Galatians that Paul had extensive time and training and teaching from the risen Lord Jesus for as much as three plus years in the deserts of Arabia, just like the original disciples got three years with Jesus, Paul gets three years with Jesus. And so he's establishing authority. You must listen to what I'm telling you, Paul says. Not just an apostle of Jesus Christ, but by the will of God. Please don't over-churchyize that. Well, yeah, well, everything's by the will of God. No, 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 no. That's good theology. It's good anthropology. I'm an apostle by the will of God, the infinite, utter, eternal, everlasting, sovereign God of the cosmos. His precise, particular purpose was this person for such a time, born Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, circumcised on the eighth day. God had in mind that one particular individual for that particular grand purpose. We say this all the time at Bethel, but I want to remind you, our God is the kind of God that has the sun stand still for Joshua cosmologically, and he has an axe head float in the water for Elisha, precisely. And in between, you have all these little individual persons that God actually has a particular and a precise plan for, and he's good. Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, I love this. Timothy gets ennobled, dignified as a co-author. Remember, this letter is being dictated out loud. Timothy is there. He's hearing this. What great leadership from Paul, who takes his beloved protege, his apprentice, Timothy. Timothy had a Greek Gentile father, but his mother and his grandmother were Jews. And so Paul probably meets Timothy on his first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, through Lystra. And on his second missionary journey, he certainly collects Timothy, and Timothy begins to travel with him and learn from Paul. And Paul loves this guy. The final letter that Paul ever writes that we have is 2 Timothy, written to his protege, who's been installed as the pastor in Ephesus during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. He loves Timothy, but Timothy was timid. We know this because over and over again in both of Paul's letters to Timothy, he says, be strong, be strong, be strong, because he wasn't. He always had these doubts. I'm half Jew, I'm half Gentile. Will I ever be accepted? And Paul says, Hey, this is from the Apostle Paul and Timothy, our brother. He's one of us. He has the same father and we have the same siblings. This is what church does. We remind one another. Despite all the wreckage of our trajectory and our tradition, we have the same father and have the same siblings, specifically our big brother, the Lord Jesus. And I can just see Timothy's face beaming and his heart swelling as Paul 
says, oh, this is also from Timothy, our brother. Timothy goes, amen. That's right, that's right, that's good. And Timothy, our brother, that's who it's from. The point of all this, we've got the father and we've got the son, is that there is an author, and it happens to be the Holy Spirit, who's working through Paul and Timothy to write to these people. Now keep that in mind. Verse 2, here are the recipients. To the saints and faithful brothers. That's how he addresses them, principally, primarily. To the saints. Now we, we hear the word saints. What does that, what does that mean? Saints, are those old, dead, moral people that we sometimes should perhaps pray to? I mean, sometimes we, in our culture, saints is a strange word. Like, is a saint someone whose conduct is just generally good? And you go, oh, that woman, she is a saint. And what you really mean is she doesn't ever have any fun. I know, I know, I know, I know. But a saint in Scripture is literally a holy one. And when Scripture uses holy, holy does not mean pure and moral and good and decent. No, no, no. It is the godness moving forward to set the world to rights. That's holy. That's Isaiah 6. Holiness is God's righteousness moving forward to set the world to rights. And so Paul says to these largely Gentiles in central Turkey, to the holy ones, the instrumentality of God's righteousness rolling forward. They're five years in on this deal. They're thinking, we don't even know who Zacchaeus was. What about Jonah and the lion's den? They can't remember. To the holy ones and faithful brothers. We are siblings. I don't know you. Paul's never been there. We know from Colossians 4, he'd never been to Colossae. I don't know you, but we are brothers. We are a family. We have the same father and the same siblings. And you are faithful. As opposed to those who are coming in who are trying to sow different seed to grow weeds instead of fruit trees. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Same theme as Ephesians. It's about being in Christ. That's our identity. And then the very customary greeting from the Apostle Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace. And always 100% of the time in that order. Because you cannot have peace unless you have received grace. In other words, you and I are incapable of accomplishing, achieving, or obtaining peace in our own strength, ingenuity, and creativity. It must come to us from an alien counter from the outside. Someone gives us grace, undeservedly, unmerited, unwarranted, and unearned, and then we enjoy and we experience peace, and in the locus and the sphere of that peace, well, everything's different. This is Paul's prayer, his hope, his blessing for these people that he's never even met. Grace and peace. But how do I know that I have this? Paul says, well, I'll tell you. It's right here in my greeting. It's from God. He don't miss. He's given you grace and you are faithful. You are a saint. You have received grace. Whether you feel like it or fully understand or appreciate it, you have it. And so you have peace. Whether or not you feel it, preach a sermon to your soul you have been given peace. Not like the world gives peace, Jesus said. My peace I give to you because you are in Christ, Paul says. Well, that's just the greeting. We're gonna pick up speed. Paul says in verse three, we all, and by the way, verses three through eight, just poly preposition, hates punctuation, I like to say. Verses three through eight, one very long run on sentence. Like I hope 
in heaven, someone's hitting him with a yardstick right now going, dude, a period would not kill you every now and then. No, three to eight, one very long sentence, one very long thought. So stick with me. We're going to roll through this. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, there's a lot there. You can read all of Paul's epistles. There are 13, yea, verily, including the little book of Philemon. Philemon and his slave Onesimus lived in Colossae. You can read all of Paul's 13 epistles and all of his speeches and sermons in the book of Acts. You will never once, not one time ever, hear Paul thank a person. So here's my invitation. Never show gratitude to anybody. No, of course not. Of course Paul was gracious, and of course he expressed gratitude. We know that the book of Philippians is essentially a four-chapter thank you note. But in Scripture, that which has been inscripturated, this is so good. I'm about to change your life right here. Any good thing that ever comes across Paul's existence, he's instantly first mindful that it is a gift of God. I'm not calling you or inviting you to not say thank you to people. No, do it more so. But in the instant, that first synaptic neurological impulse that fires, you recognize that there is anything good. This is actually a precise, minute, finite, detailed, specific goodness given by God that you and I do not deserve. We take it for granted. We have a tendency to think, oh, I'm pretty good. I don't rob banks or speed in school zones unless I'm late. And I, I don't say bad things out loud unless my team's losing badly. Or, you know, I'm pretty good. And so good things, well, they should happen to me. And I'm not surprised by good things. I'm surprised by bad things. Oh, no, the Apostle Paul has a word for you. If anything good happens to you, I don't know, a sunrise, a parking spot in front of Chess King, whatever it might be. If anything, if your spouse is nice, if your kids are respectful, if you have this happen at work or whatever, be gracious, express gratitude. But first and foremost, recognize there is an infinite, sovereign, eternal God who loves me. This is, this is a, a stroke of his hand on my cheek going, do you, do you, do you, are you getting this? I love you. You, not them, although I do. You. This is because I love you. Paul says, I always thank my God when I'm giving thanks and praying for you. Now, I don't know about you. I know about me. If I was falsely accused, innocent, sitting in prison, living at my own expense, halfway around the world, who are you going to be trying to communicate with? Well, first of all, I'm looking for a spoon to try to dig out of the walls. Secondly, I'm probably writing to an attorney, to some family, to some friends, to some high-powered allies. No, no. Paul's writing to some complete strangers in a place that he's never even visited because Paul has proper perspective. He understands what his life is all about. Now, this is incredibly instructive for us. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And again, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, Father of Jesus, that is absolutely, unambiguously a divine proclamation of the deity and divinity of Jesus. And the Roman soldier would have heard it because all the statues would all say Caesar, son of God, who brings the gospel of good news, the salvation of the world. All the statues of the Caesar said that. Paul just said, oh, it's actually Jesus. And the centurion goes, vroom, vroom, continue. I want to hear more about this guy. Verse four, since 
we heard of your faith in Christ, Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard about before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now here's the meat of this message is it's in verses four and five. We have Paul's famous and familiar trilogy of virtue. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter that many of you had at your wedding, you don't remember, you weren't paying attention. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, here Paul sort of nuances it because he's trying to correct and confront conflict with the kingship of Christ. And he says, you have faith, and you have love through, because of, hope. So there's an interesting sequencing. Can I just confess what you already know? I love to nerd out in the epistles because it gives us so much wonderful theology and doctrine that we can actually stand with our entire weight and being on because it's true biblically. The gospel is faith and love because of hope. What is faith? Well, we say this all the time. Faith is more than just simply faith. I just believe, believe in what? I, in believing now, that's a Disney movie. Those aren't real. Sorry, kids. Not just believing for the sake of, but belief. There's three ingredients in the casserole of belief, three elements in the molecule of belief. There is understanding, there is agreement, and there is trust. St. Augustine, or Augustine, if you prefer, in the fourth century, fifth century, he put it this way. Faith is understanding's step. Understanding is faith's reward. It's brilliant. Faith is understanding's step. Understanding is faith's reward. Faith is this idea of trusting in with our whole being, our whole weight on a thing. We have faith. Then there Paul says, I've heard about your love. Where does Paul hear this? More on that in a moment. But I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. What is love? It's not just good intentioned feelings well wishes about somebody else. It is a well-reasoned concern for another. It is wanting another's highest possible good even above my own, even perhaps at my own expense because that other person is worth more to me than my own good because I have all that I need. Faith and love because of hope. Hope, please hear me, is a very strange word in the 21st century in Western civilization. We use hope like, gee, I sure hope that comes to pass, as in, I hope so, I wish, gee, wouldn't that be nice if. That is not the biblical usage of hope. Hope is a confident, certain expectation of something good in the future. It's knowing the end of the story beyond the shadow of a doubt. It's reading the last page of a book and then starting in the introduction. You know how this is going to go. You've already read it. It's in print. You got it. A confident expectation of something good in the future. Paul says something absolutely stinging. Let me put this up from Norman Geisler. Here's how he wraps up faith and love and hope. Norman Geisler puts it this way. He says, faith is the soul looking upward to God. Love looks outward to others Hope looks forward to the future. So there is this sort of past, present, and future sense of faith and love and hope. And then listen to what Paul says here. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, you believe that Jesus is who we claim that he is and that he did what he claimed he would do. And 
you have love for all the saints. What's, what's going on there? These Colossians, because of their faith, because of their hope, were loving not just the people who were in that little church in Colossae, but they were also exhibiting and expressing love to the churches of Hierapolis and Laodicea as well. Something was happening. Something was different. This was completely uncharacteristic in the Roman Empire. Then, as now, cultures exist with an assumption of scarcity. But not these Colossian Christians. They were sharing generously of the resources and of themselves. We heard of this because of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope. And then Paul does this beautiful thing, laid up because of the hope, laid up for you in heaven. What is this hope? <laughs> it's Jesus. He uses a funny little word there. It's not a program or a policy or a procedure or even a promise. Although it is a promise, it's a person. It's Jesus. The word he uses here is res reservation. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, God the Father calls out, Jesus, party of one. Jesus, party of one. He shows up, and then millions upon millions of people sit down with him. That's literally what Paul is saying. Your hope is a person, and he's there, and he cannot fail. He cannot fall. Can a person lose their salvation? Absolutely. Just as soon as Jesus sins and gets kicked out of heaven. Until that happens, you are secure. This is why Hebrews 6 says our anchor holds behind the veil. Because it's not an anchor, it's a person. And God loves him. So being a saint actually has nothing to do with our conduct or our attitude. It has everything and only to do with Jesus' conduct and attitude. Our hope is there. And so because of that certainty, we are unleashed to live lives of faith and love. This is the gospel, faith and love because of hope. So what is your hope? And, 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 and don't be too quick. What is your hope really? That's why the gospel is so much more than simply going to heaven one day when you die. No, it is about moment by moment, every day walking around lives of faith and love. Imagine a world in which millions of people were actually characterized thus instead of a, voter, a particular voting record. This is what Paul's calling these people to. Because of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Paul summarizing goes, listen, that's the gospel right there for you Colossians. This is my unique nuance of the Colossian gospel. All this other stuff that's coming in, there's this strange mysticism and Gnosticism and Judaizing that's coming, all this legalism. Listen, listen, you have faith and love because of hope. That's the gospel. This gospel, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. Now, I do this all the time because I can't help it. When we get to these epistles, particularly from Paul, Paul's saying something about the kingdom of God. It's come to you and the whole world, what is he saying? You guys, you guys, you guys, I'm a Jew. And I thought the kingdom of God was gonna be this thing that it will be as of much later at second advent. But you guys, the kingdom of God has come. It's not what we expected. The Lord Jesus has brought it and he's grabbed the borders and the boundaries of the kingdom and he's brought it back into our context and he's pinned it down by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You are from the future, living in the present, 
because of what Jesus did in the past. You are a future kind of person. Now watch, he's going to back this up. Verse 6. Which has come to you in Colossae, as indeed in the whole world. This thing is now going through exponential regional expansion. This kingdom. The whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Oh, why does Paul use that expression? Because he knew what about Colossae. He had gotten a report. There's the Cadmus Mountains. It's Napa, baby. There's the town. It's gorgeous. And there's just fruit trees. These Colossians knew about fruit. They knew what this meant. And by the way, this is no accident. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is language of redemptive recreation. The world is being Edenified. It's Eden all over again. But it's not necessarily through actual literal fruit trees. Oh, no, no, no. It's people! God is redemptively recreating the world through people who are indwelled by God's Spirit, surrounded by God's people, immersed in God's Word, and it's bearing fruit. And the Colossians go, oh, like out there. Paul goes, yes, 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 yes. But it's you. On the global and regional and familial context, it's you bearing fruit all over the world. Bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, Colossians, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Somebody taught you this. And when it took, that seed of truth took root, it began to produce bounty. What Jesus will say in the parables, your most opulent, opportunistic, your most optimistic hope was that your crop might possibly Produce tenfold. Jesus goes, oh, no, no, no. You, you be my disciple, you will reproduce 30, 60, and 100-fold. And Paul says, you guys, it's happened. The kingdom is breaking forth all over the world. And you, largely Gentile Colossians, outside of the Holy Land, you are producing exponential fruit. Just look outside your city walls, and you will see what I'm talking about. Verse 7. Just as you learned it. Now, this word learned, there's not a better translation. Just as you were, it's a passive verb. It means were discipled, mafantone. Just as you were discipled from Epaphras. Oh, here at long last, here's my guy. I love this guy. We don't know a lot about Epaphras, but I'm so going to play shoots and ladders with this guy when I get to heaven. I love this guy. All we know is that Epaphras is almost certainly from Colossae, and that while Paul was stationed in Ephesus for some three, not three plus years, Ephesus is 100 miles east of Colossae. While Paul's there, apparently Epaphras and Philemon make their way to Ephesus. Here Paul, spend some time with him, are converted. And Paul dispatches Epaphras back to Colossae to start and plant the church at Colossae. Don't get me wrong. I love Ephesians. I love Ephesians. But there were all kinds of miraculous things happening in Ephesus. There was the Apostle Paul personally present in Ephesus. Colossae never had an apostle. And there were no miracles in Colossae. You know what that means? You know what that means? We're Colossians. We're Colossians. Those people believe the apostolic testimony and teaching, having never met an apostle and never seen a miracle. And Paul loves them. That's us for the last 2,000 years. We've never had a real-life apostle. There are no miracles happening. <gasps> Except that people are coming to faith 
and these jars of clay are being indwelled by the very Spirit of God. The treasure of the cosmos takes up dwelling in people like you and me. It's the greatest miracle that's ever been. We are a Colossian church in the sense that we stand on the apostolic teachings, having never met an apostle, and there are no miracles, and yet we believe. And Paul loved that. It was a force multiplier. Paul couldn't get to every place, but the teachings of the apostles and the movement of the Spirit were going to get it done. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, Sundulas. This is a technical term. We are, we are bond servants and slaves together. We're, we're, we're chained together. I just happen to actually be accessorized with the latest shackle from Rome. Epaphras isn't, but we're in the same work. Now, he'll only ever use that title, Sundulas, fellow bondservant with one other guy. It's at the end of Colossians, a guy named Tychicus, who actually carries the letter back from Rome to Colossae. A fellow bondservant. So Paul loves this guy. It's a title of high esteem. Listen to what he says. He, let me put the emphasis on the correct syllable. He is a faithful minister of Christ. Not like those other guys who were coming in and trying to convince you that that's really cute and all, Jesus and his work, and that's nice and all, but you also have to. No, 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 Paul says. You heard it from the beginning. Don't change it. If it's new, it ain't true. You heard it from Paphras. I like this guy. I taught him. I trained him. Listen to what he taught you because he is a faithful minister of Christ on, your ESV might say your behalf. That's okay. It doesn't change the doctrine. More probably, more precisely, it's probably on our behalf. Paul wants them to know, hey, I sent him. I'm an apostle and he's my guy. He's my delegate. You can trust him. Keep listening to him. He's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Why does Paul affirm Epaphras? By the way, Epaphras is there hearing this also dictated out loud. His heart must have swelled. He's apparently been ministering in Colossae for five years and now all these sideways teachings are coming in. Things have escalated. He doesn't know what to do. And so it's so important that he actually leaves the church, probably in Philemon's hands, and he goes all the way to Rome and go, Paul, what do I do? And Paul goes, oh, I'll tell you. I'm going to send a letter back telling them about the supremacy of Christ and that what you've taught is true. Why does Paul have to encourage Epaphras? Because Epaphras was leading a church. And like all people who lead churches, we love what we do. We have no idea what we're doing. And so we need encouragement that comes from the apostolic teaching of God's word to remind us, oh, this is God's work. God is getting this done. Verse 8, and Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras has made known, don't, don't just over-churchyize that. That's the whole thing. Epaphras is, Paul, the thing you want to hear most about that church, it's happening. They are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in them. Because Paul will write in Romans 8, 9, the mark the distinguishing distinctive of a Christian is that they are indwelled by the Spirit. And Galatians 5, the Spirit produces fruit. Paul, Epaphras tells him, there's some quirky things happening. There's some false teaching. There's some pre-Gnosticism. There's some angelology. There's some mysticism. There's some Judaizing. But Paul, Paul, they got the Spirit and the Spirit's got them. The kingdom has been pulled over. Those are some future fruit. Not that they're going to be fruit. They are fruit from the future. And they're sending out seeds. Paul, Paul, it's happening. And so here we have Paul in chains, the gospel unchained, and the Trinity, our triune Godhead, is producing exponential increase and expansion all over the known world. See, the gospel 
is faith and love because of hope. So what do we take away from this? Let me give you three very quick implications of why this matters and how we can apply this to our walking around lives. Three quick implications. Number one goes like this. Our identity is redemptive, not geographical. That's kind of a mouthful. A lot of us like to associate with our nationality, perhaps our ethnicity, perhaps our race, perhaps our socioeconomic status. I'm sorry, it's not, it's not impressive. But when you are called a saint of the Most High God in Christ Jesus, now we're talking eternality. I know we say this a lot, but we are from the future. We are the fruits of what God's kingdom looks like when it breaks in. He wanted those people in Colossae to know, and by extension, he wants us to know. We are saints, not just good every now and then. We are future fruit now. Now, in the next paragraph, these first 12 verses, Paul will use the term you plural, y'all, yuns, you guys, 18 times in 12 verses. He really wants to remind them, hey, you're getting, ass you're getting assaulted. You're getting barraged and bombarded by all these counterfeit teachings, all these things that are trying to snag your attention and your affection. No, no, y'all are in Christ. Y'all are in Christ. Y'all are in Christ. You are saints. You're not just good. In fact, you're not. You were holy, unholy, and not set apart, not righteous. But now God has done a thing. He chooses, he changes his mind to see you in Christ. And you are the fruit of his identifying the whole world, even in the midst of a dark and depraved generation. You shine like lights in the darkness, Peter will say. You are the fruit that is bursting forth and producing exponential expansion. Don't you know who you are? You're not trying to merely slog it out and eke out an existence until you die. Oh no, you're a saint. You are the rolling forward righteousness of God. Do you have to try to change the world? <laughs> good luck. No, of course not. But the good news is you don't have to. It's been changed already. The rightful king has landed, C.S. Lewis said, and we are to be about his campaign of sabotage. That's what it is to be a saint. There is hope. And so I would contend that we must increasingly be heavenly-minded so that we are increasingly earthly good. Perhaps you've heard that knock. Oh, that person's so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Well, that may just mean they're so Pollyanna and so not even aware of the world in which they live. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying because of the hope that you regularly and rightly recognize and remember, because you are so heavenly-minded, you will be this reverberating, radiating, saint of God in a dark and dying world. And by the way, that is precisely what this world needs. I'd be happy if gas prices were lower and if there were no soldiers bearing arms anywhere. But what this world really needs is the saints of God to be about the campaign of sabotage because the rightful king has landed. Our identity, the thing that is always true about us, is redemptive, not geographical. Second point goes like this, very simply. Trust God. Well, that's, you didn't have to work really hard for that one, Pastor. Nope. Nope. It just comes right out of the text. Trust God. When we sin, it's because at some level we simply don't trust God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God. It's that we have chosen to forget Him. So remember, 
When we sin, it's because at some level we don't believe the gospel. There's something out there in my construct of scarcity I need to get for myself. I don't trust him. I don't trust the gospel. I don't have faith and love because of hope, but there's something else that tells me that I've been listening to competitive, conflicting messages. And so my hope slips, not the person, but my tether to it. I, 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 I lose focus. And when I lose that sense of hope, then my faith begins to be fragile. And I'm not loving. I begin to look at people as objects of what I think I might possibly need for a jolt of happiness. You've been there? Of course you have. Set your clocks, three o'clock, you will all be there too, just with me. We all do that. But trust God. It means that hope is found functionally in what Jesus has done. Our faith and our love must not be stunted. It's such a big deal that the entire book of Isaiah, 66 chapters, is written so that God can say over and over again, hey, hey, look up here. Hey, I'm God. I'm good. You can trust me. Next chapter, hey, hey, look up here. I'm God. I'm good. You can trust me. 66 chapters of that. Why does God keep doing that? Because we don't. So trust God. That is our hope. Whatever it takes to actively remember that your hope is secure, do it. You've been granted everlasting lottery ticket of the entire cosmos, and it holds. It is Jesus. Third one, also not novel, not new, but it, equally important. What Paul will tell the Colossians in four chapters, what I want us to hear this morning, the gospel plus anything equals nothing. Five years in, these false teachers begin to come in and go, hey, that Jesus, that's pretty cool and all, but you really want to be varsity, you got to change your clothing and do these sorts of special dietary restrictions, or you got to speak in this ecstatic utterance, which who knew they even had Spanish back then, but apparently they, they did. <laughs> you, you got to do all these extra things to really be varsity because that Jesus, that you, <laughs> that's not requiring anything of you. And Paul goes, right. What good could you possibly bring to the table? You are cut off, separate, far from God, having no hope in the God of Israel, he will say elsewhere. No, no, no. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. Any of those additives is not good news. It's bad news. Jesus has given us every blessing in the heavenly places already. That's what Ephesians 1 says. And there is literally nothing we could ever do to add or detract from that. That's the gospel. The gospel is faith and love because of hope. Speaking of the gospel, we spent 14 weeks in the gospel of Mark. We spent a week in the book of Acts. Look at Jesus. Look what Paul is proclaiming. Jesus is alive. Jesus' harshest words, amazingly, amazingly, was not for sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. It was for people who tried to warp and pervert the goodness, the holiness, the redemption that God offered. So I want to invite you to maybe for the first time in a long time to actually stop. I know you've heard it before. I know you have. But to stop, take a step back and go, what do I really think about the gospel? How does it really impact, influence, and change my walking around daily life? Do I have faith that I can jump up and down this truth? Do I have love? Am I looking around? <laughs> just, just imagine. And I'm not kidding. Looking around for all those people that are instantly going to flash before your face when I say this, who drive you crazy. And you will give them a good happy label. You'll call them extra grace required. I know a lot of people call me that. Oh, he's extra grace required. He's extra. I, I know. I know. 
What if instead of imagining different ways to bring them pain, torture, sorrow, and grief, and you're very creative at that, I know you are, what if you applied all of your marshaled creativity to gorilla assault them with goodness and they never see it coming? How you like them apples? That's fruit. And there is no reason why you and me aren't unleashed to do that. This is the gospel. Let's live in it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this good news, this great story, this awesome announcement of what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And so, Father, I pray that you would stir irresistibly by your spirit right now for anyone in my hearing on all three of these floors watching remotely, that if they do not know you, they're still trying to eke out and slog out some life and die with their fingers crossed, that you would instead give them life where there was death, that you would give them light where there was darkness, that you would give them hope that would produce faith and love, that they would step into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus and like those early Colossian believers, that they would be saints. So would you move, Father? Would you give them a notion, an idea of someone perhaps in this room or in their family or in their friend group with whom they can speak, that they know and love and trust about the good news? And they would begin their journey of ever increasingly becoming fruitful and fruity. Father, for the rest of us, may we not hear this and hear it as a burden to try harder to be better, to be more saintly. No but instead to think of Jesus, our hope, our anchor that holds, that our hope would be galvanized such that our faith and love would be unleashed in this world. Would you do that? Because that'd be great. I'd love that. And I know that you would too. So please, that's all we can ask. Unless you've got a better idea. So we pray all these things and all the people of God said together, amen.